episode of my podcast titled The Truth For You. My name is Vintage Shinji, and today we have ourselves another interesting topic. Now just before I dive into this episode, I just want to say a little something, something. It has been a minute since I have released my last podcast episode. Actually, it's been about six months since my last podcast episode. always important. You know, I wanted to make sure that, you know, I need a little more clarity on the direction that God wants me to go with this podcast. And uh, it took the time that it took from my last podcast episode up until now um, for me to reach that place of confidence and assurance where um, God wants to take this podcast. So again, I'm eternally grateful for my listeners and my subscribers. So much has happened since the last time I've done my podcast episode, and because so much has happened, I have a lot to say, um, and there is a lot to talk about. There is a lot of issues that needs to be addressed and tackled. If you've been paying attention to the news, uh, particularly to this episode, uh, the most recent controversy that's been happening, uh, it seems that there is a topic that's in every conversation, an elephant that must be addressed in every is the topic anti-semitism and if you're like me i know you have questions in your mind regarding this what is anti-semitism um how did we get here as a society and as a nation regarding this issue how can it be addressed how can we navigate this issue this was definitely a challenge as I thought to tackle and address this and show this podcast episode titled The Rise in Anti-Semitism. Well, we have some answers and hopefully we can get to the nitty gritty and we can come to a place of understanding and clarity where we can finally just stand united all with one another on this topic. I'm excited about it. So with all due respect, let's get into it. Don't want to miss this episode. Stay tuned. Okay. So, why did I decide to do this podcast episode again? Right, because I wanted to address this specific issue. Okay. Lord help. You know, I've uh, addressed many controversial issues, controversial topics on my podcast. We've dealt with the issue of abortion on my last podcast episode. We've addressed the issue of racism on various episodes on my podcast. 
We've even addressed the issue of suicide, death, gun violence, um, politics. But, you know, there's there seems to be something very different <laughs> about this specific issue. I feel like this issue of anti-Semitism holds a lot of weight and gravity um, respectfully, right? Compared to all the other issues that I've dealt with um, before. Maybe that's why I felt the need that this issue needs to be addressed to help our young people navigate this. Of course, practically and biblically. And with a topic so heavy, with a topic so controversial with the topic so heated where does a brother start <laughs> where does one begin you know I, I i had to ask myself this question and i think i found the perfect starting point kanye west <laughs> kanye west is seems to be the person who have been created this new recent wave in regards to this issue. Sort of the catalyst, a chain of events that has happened this past couple of weeks. Now, if you have been paying attention to the news, paying attention to social media, you would know that I believe in a couple, about a couple of weeks. Kanye West tweeted a very most controversial tweet. And let's just say that his tweet went a little something like this. Feeling a bit sleepy tonight. But when I wake up, I'm going to go DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. Now, as you would have known, this tweet, of course, set Twitter in the world on fire. And of course, he've angered many people, specifically our brothers and sisters in the Jewish faith and in the Jewish community. And what's funny is that when Kanye did that, he said, you know, Adidas can't drop me. Y'all can't drop me. Well, within a day, Adidas not only dropped Kanye West, but Kanye West was dropped also from the billionaire list. A brother done lost $1.5 billion in one day. Now, you know, I've, I've lost $1 before. I've lost $100 before. But man, losing $1.5 billion? Whew. Talk about a heavy load. <laughs> Drop. Right? And of course... It's interesting, too, because in that tweet also, which is interesting that no one seems to talk about, is that Kanye West also mentioned in the tweet that he can't be anti-Semitic because the blacks are also Jews. Now, of course, as we go through here, this episode, we're going to dive in and, 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 and go a little bit deeper on these things. Um, but I also just want to, to, to say, you know, whenever Kanye West speaks, you don't really know what you're going to get. You don't know if it's Kanye speaking 
You don't know if it's Ye speaking. You don't know if it's Mr. West speaking. You don't know if it's Jesus, quote unquote, speaking. You just don't know what you're going to get when Kanye opens his mouth. Um, but it is interesting to see the reactions. It's interesting to see the um, the issue and the series of events that has followed since, um, as you all know, Kyrie Irving as well mentioned something. Actually, he didn't mention anything. Kyrie Irving also shared a link on his Twitter platform that many found was anti-Semitic, was wrong, was very offensive. And I believe the link that he shared was from a documentary called From Hebrews to Negroes. And this was, and all he did was share a link on the Twitter platform. There was no caption, no description, not even an emoji. Just shared a link on a public platform and as you might imagine that as well has caused an outrage pour of outrage um, in the world in the media to the point where Kyrie Irving would be in press conferences and he was being pressed on the issue or the label of being anti-semitic and it's interesting because as I'm watching the press conferences and I'm seeing how Kyrie Irving is answering all of these questions and these news reporters are asking Kyrie about his recent post, you know, Kyrie Irving mentioned something. He says, how can I be anti-Semitic if I know where I'm from and I know who I am? I can't be an anti-Semitic, right? And of course... That's not what the media wanted to hear. What the media wanted was an apology. Okay, Carrie Irving, are you going to apologize? You've offended the people in the Jewish community. You've offended the people in the Jewish faith. Are you going to say sorry? Right? And of course, as you can imagine, it only took Kyrie Irving about three days, three days or so, a couple of days, to finally issue a direct apology, right? And not only that he gave out an apology, but the NBA commissioner, Adam Silver, felt that the apology was not enough, that my brother Kyrie had to do about six things in order to be received within the graces of the Nets organization or the NBA. Um, part of that was him being suspended for five games. But also another one was the fact that he had to pay $500,000 to the Anti-Defamation League. Which I found as interesting as well too. You know, as I'm looking at these issues and these recent topics, and of course you have Dave Chappelle who gave his monologue on SNL just within the several days, right? And, and it seems like all of these events happen 
one week after another um, where he addresses Kyrie, where he addresses Kanye, and where he addresses the issue of anti-Semitism. And as you would know, Dave Chappelle as well found himself in some heat and controversy where he himself is labeled as an anti-Semite. What's interesting in all of this is that we're dealing with an issue, a label that Kanye West did not DM. We're dealing with an issue and a label that has been around for years. And I think that Kanye West is a good starting point to discuss the issue, but not necessarily the starting point of the issue. Let's dive a little deeper into the history of this thing. You know, what's interesting is that I can't remember coming across the word or the term anti-Semitic in school. It probably have been mentioned. It probably was addressed or spoken of, but I don't remember it too vague or I don't remember it as vividly. I do remember learning about the Holocaust. I do remember learning about the diary of Anna Frank, reading that book and the impact that it's had on my personal life and learning about the issue that transpired um, in that time frame. But the word anti-Semitic, I don't recall. Matter of fact, it wasn't about two years ago until I began my research and study of the word anti-Semitism because of another controversial event that happened. Now, if you all recall, two years ago in the summer of 2020, I would say probably late summer 2020, towards July, the famous outspoken comedian, Nick Cannon, right? The host of the show, Wild and Out. <laughs> and um, not only is he the, sh the host of Wild and Out, but he, he actually wilds out in his own life, right? I think he's on his 12th child or whatnot. Um, yeah, so uh, this this guy who's 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 multiplying his his, his, his seeds and babies and all the earth. Uh, this guy had his own podcast called Cannon's Class, and on this podcast he would discuss a variety of issues and topics as it re relates and involves the black communities, other communities, and he would invite special guests on and discuss a variety of topics. And one of the guests that he invited was Richard Griffin, better known as Professor Griff, uh, who was once a part of a famous rap group called Public Enemy in 1989, right? So on that interview, Nick Cannon made some anti-Semitic comments, quote unquote, in which he mentioned, we give so much power to these, and these turn into Illuminati, the Zionists, the Rothschilds, referring to the wealthy Jewish family, 
right? And oftentimes they're used as a quote-unquote dog whistle for anti-Semitism. And of course, as you can imagine, because of those comments, Nick Cannon received a lot of heat. There was a lot of outrage to the point where he lost uh, his position as the host of Wild and Out. Now, I don't, I'm not sure if he's been reinstated or if, or if he's now the host of Wild and Out. Um, I don't really keep up with that show. Um, but it even got to a point where he also lost some endorsements, right? And Nick Cannon wanted to gain ownership of Wild and Out. Now, not to go to, into details with that specific issue, um, it was my first introduction to the word anti-Semitism. I was like, what does that word mean? I mean, I saw the word. It said anti-Semitic. I did not know what it was. I, when I thought of anti-Semitic, I'm like, semi-truck? What, what are we talking about? Is Are we talking a samurai? Did he offend the Japanese? <laughs> you know, I, I, I had no idea what the word meant, what it was. And so as any curious, um, ignorant person would do or should do, was research. Uh, so I researched it. I said, you know what? I'm going to find out what this word is. And I, I don't like that it's coming up in the news and I don't know what it means. Um, I, one thing about me is I don't like to be ignorant on things that, um, that I feel that I, should, that I should know, or especially on important issues and topics. And this one was no different. So I began to do my little research, go into my little laboratory, open up my laptop, uh, Google, that is, <laughs> And learn about this word anti-Semitism and some, uh, you know, what it means to be anti-Semitic. And I could say that what I found was very interesting, very interesting, and that I would like to uh, uh, share. Alright, so let's get to the nitty-gritty. Let's get to the bottom of this. What is an anti-Semite? What is the definition? of anti-Semitism, to be or not to be. What says Merriam-Webster Dictionary about this word? Well, according to the dictionary, Merriam-Webster Dictionary, that is, the term anti-Semite means a person mm -hmm, who has a hostile mm, prejudice mm, attitude towards Jews, an anti-Semitic person. And also, the definition of anti-Semitism from the Britannica is that it is a hostility toward or discrimination against Jews as a religious or racial group. And also, another definition, can't go wrong with definitions, right, is from the Anti-Defamation League. Anti-Semitism is defined as the belief or behavior hostile towards Jews just because they are Jewish. It may take the form of religious teachings that proclaim the inferiorities of Jews, for instance, or political efforts to isolate, oppress, or otherwise injure Jewish people. So, all in a nutshell, an anti-Semite is someone who is racist against Jews or who push or hold stereotypes, negative stereotypes about the Jewish people, whether as a religious group, 
or as a race. What's interesting about the term anti-Semitism is that it was not first recognized as a dictionary term up until 1879, and it was actually used by a German agitator. His name was William Marr, and he used that to push anti-Jewish campaigns in Central Europe at the time. We know that the Nazis was anti-Semitic as well, too, that the Nazi party held anti-Semitic views. And, of course, during that time with Hitler, Hitler and the Nazi parties pushed anti-Semitic propagandas to move the masses of the German people to see the Jews in a particular light. Um, what's even deeper about this issue is that it's, Anti-Semitism, while it did not become a term widely known um, in 1879, the late 1800s and early 1900s, it was practiced way before then. I'm talking even the first century, right? Even the first century, the Jewish people have experienced anti-Semitism and racism against their people and religion and and race right and what's interesting is that in the beginning phases anti-semitism existed to some degree wherever jews have settled outside of palestine in the ancient greco-roman world religious differences were the primary basis for anti-semitism so the primary basis for anti-semitism wasn't necessarily a political or economical, it was more so primarily religious differences, differences in beliefs, right? So, for example, in the Hellenistic age, for instance, Jews' social segregation and their refusal to acknowledge the gods worshipped by other peoples aroused resentment among some pagans, particularly in the first century BCE, first century uh, CE. You see, unlike polytheist polytheistic religions which acknowledge multiple gods judaism is monotheistic it recognizes only one god so the pagans saw jews principled refusal to worship emperors as gods as a sign of disloyalty so basically the pagans were like wait wait hold up man we know we're about to go and worship the sun outside you know what i'm saying like like are you down are you, you, you down with that you, you cool with that and, you know, Jewish brothers and sisters would say, uh, no, we do not acknowledge the sun as God. We do not acknowledge that wind as God. We do not acknowledge the sea as God. And they're like, well, oh, like, who do you think you are? Like, bro, like, are you either you're going to worship the sun God or you are just a complete heathen. Right. So, of course, the difference in religious belief led to hostility towards the Jewish people. Right. And it doesn't even stop there. Of course, as we know, there was even rivalry between Christians and the Jews as well, too. Right. Um, although Jesus and his disciples were practicing, were practicing Jews and, and Christianity is rooted in the Jewish teaching of monotheism. Judaism and Christianity became rivals soon after Jesus was crucified by Pontius Pilate. Of course, the man who executed Christ, according to Roman practice, uh, this rivalry initially began as theological and eventually it became political, 
right? And even historians agree that the break between Judaism and Christianity followed the Roman destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem in the year 70 CE and the subsequent exile of Jews. So in the aftermath of this defeat, which was interpreted by Jews and Christians alike as a sign of divine punishment, the Gospels diminished Roman responsibility and expressed Jewish compatibility in the death of Jesus, both explicitly and implicitly. Basically, Jews were depicted as killers of the Son of God, right? And so, of course, Christians at the time felt that Jews were practicing a defiant spirit, a defiant and reluctant spirit, and refusing to accept uh, Christianity, right? And so, of course, as you can imagine, this leads to more hostility uh, between Christians and Jews as well, um, even further down, and even to the point where even in the 4th century to, you know, from St. Augustine to Martin Luther in the 16th century, a lot of even the most eloquent and persuasive Christian theologians felt the Jews were rebels against God and murderers of the Lord and were even described as companions of the devil and race of vipers, right? And what's interesting is that it doesn't even stop there. Even in medieval Europe, anti-Semitism was on the rise. So religious attitudes at that time were reflected in the economic, social, and political life of medieval Europe. In much of Europe during the Middle Ages, Jews were denied citizenship and its rights, barred from holding posts in government and the military, and excluded from membership in guilds and the professions, right? So during medieval ages, in the Middle Ages, Jews were denied citizenship. They were denied rights. They were denied from holding certain offices in the government and in certain positions and jobs, right? So to a degree, Jews were also experiencing anti-Semitism even in the medieval ages and the Middle Ages, right? And so what's interesting enough is that the rise of anti-Semitism even began to grow um, even from there. And again, as I mentioned before, in Europe, as commerce grew in the late Middle Ages, some Jews became prominent. They became prosperous in trade and banking and money lending. And Jews' economic and cultural success tended to arouse the envy of, of course, the population. This economic resentment allied with traditional religious prejudice prompted the forced expulsion of Jews from several countries and regions, including England from 1290, France in the 14th century, Germany in the 1350s, Portugal in 1496, province in 1512, and the Papal States in 1569. An even intensifying persecution in Spain culminated in 1492 in the forced expulsion of that country's large and long-established Jewish populations. I mean, the list honestly does go on. You can do your own research of anti-Semitism, how it grew, how it rose. So all in a nutshell, the Jews have been getting it bad from the beginning. It wasn't just during the Nazis. It wasn't just during the Holocaust. 
This is all the way back from the first century up until now. Anti-Semitism has been something that the Jews have been experiencing and have been fighting uh, for over years, centuries, and thousands of years, that is. Okay, so now that we've kind of gone through a brief timeline of anti-Semitism, where it began, where it started, how it progressed in different time periods, different parts of the world. Another question that led me to do some further research is what does it mean to be a Semite? Or what does it mean to be Semitic? We know what, a Sem we know what anti-Semitic is. We know what anti-Semitism is. But what does it mean to be a Semite, right? And what's interesting is that what I found was eyebrow-raising. For example, according to dictionary.com, a Semite is a member of any various ancient and modern peoples originating in southwestern Asia, including the Akkadians, Canaanites, Phoenicians, Hebrews, and Arabs. According to the adjective Semitic, this is relating to or denoting a family of languages that includes Hebrew, Arabic, and Aramic, and certain ancient languages, such as Phoenician and Akkadian, constituted the main subgroup of the Afro-Asiatic family, or of relating to the peoples who speak Semitic languages, especially Hebrew and Arabic. This is interesting to me, because I thought that if somebody was anti-Semitic, or was an anti-Semite, that that automatically mean that they were anti-Jew. But when you look at the definition itself of Semite and Semitic, it's much broader than the Jewish community. Now you bring in people who speak Hebrew. Now you bring in people who speak Arabic. Now it broadens even to our Muslim brothers and our Islamic brothers who also consider themselves as Semites. So it's interesting to me that the term Semitic and Semite is much broader. So, which means that someone who practices hate and hostility towards Jews, while they're labeled as anti-Semitic, if we really had to bring it together with the actual definition of a Semite or someone who is Semitic, it would also broaden to mean that it's someone who shows hostility and racism towards those who speak Hebrew or those who speak Arabic languages or those who identify as my brothers and sisters in the Islamic and Muslim faith. You know, that's, 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 that's very interesting to me because in light of the issue with Kyrie Irving, Kyrie Irving was labeled as an anti-Semite and that he was anti-Semitic. You know, it, it brings into perspective the press conference that Kyrie Irving had. You know, when Kyrie had his press conference, all the news reporters and journalists were pressing him and asking him if he was anti-Semitic, if he was an anti-Semite. And Kyrie Irving gave a very interesting answer. He said, if I know who I am and where I came from, how can I be anti-Semitic or how can I be anti-Semite? In other words... Kyrie identifies himself as a Semite, as do, as do other brothers and sisters who are in the Muslim and Islamic faith. To call a Muslim or an Islamic person an anti-Semite is sort of an oxymoron. What's also interesting as well, too, is that 
the Jewish faith is not the only religious community that believes that they are also a part of the descendants of Abraham or from one of the descendants of the 12 tribes um, of Israel. We have our brothers and sisters who are in the black Hebrew Israelites faith. You have uh, blacks who believe that blacks are the chosen uh, people of God. Um, and of course, oftentimes this can be seen in the religious setting as extremist groups or extreme sects of uh, Judaism. But nonetheless, um, everyone has the freedom of their religion. Nonetheless, let every man, according to the scripture, be persuaded um, in his own in his own mind. Uh, so the the term of a Semite and Semitic is not limited to the Jews as we know now, but it is much more broader. And there are others of other race and ethnicities and other um, beliefs who believe that they too are Semitic and are Semites. So it becomes a little more complicated when oftentimes the term of someone who is anti-Semitic is only exclusively showing hate and hostility towards the Jewish community when really it's broader um, than that. So I think that we have a lot more research to do. And what's more interesting is that I think the whole Kyrie Irving situation is complex and complicated only because of the history between blacks and Jews are just as complex and complicated. So as we take a deeper dive into the look between the blacks and Jews and their relationship, what's interesting is that the relationship did not start off controversial. The relationship did not start off as complicated as it is right now. Matter of fact, the relationship began cordial. It was mutual. Blacks and Jews were partners and allies in the fight of struggle for freedom and equality. This dates even back to Booker T. Washington as far as 1910. In 1910, Julius Rosenwald, who was the Jewish philanthropist and president of the Sears, we all know what Sears, you know, the department store, Roebuck and other company department stores. Well, he came across a book that was written by Mr. Booker T. Washington, whom we know as the educator who started his life as a slave and eventually built up the illustrious Tuskegee Institute in Alabama. Talk about starting from the bottom, now we're here. This was the start of a remarkable collaboration between the two men. So you will, here you have a Jewish philanthropist and a president of one of the most famous, right, uh, department stores who came across a book by Booker T. Washington, who was a slave abolitionist, uh, but nonetheless, who was also one of the most brilliant black minds um, in history. And these two men came together and collaborated. I wonder what was the result of a black man and Jewish man coming together. I wonder what was the result. Let's look here. There was an issue right during the time. Public education for black children was poorly underfunded in the segregated schools of the South. Over a span of two decades, Rosenwald and Washington built 5,000 schools that educated more than 600,000 black children, approximately one-third of all black children at a time in what became known as the Rosenwald School Project. Did you hear that? 
these two brothers came together. You see what happens when two communities come together with mutual interests? You see what happens when blacks and Jews sit at the same table? You see what happened when we just put our differences aside and we decide to put all of our forces and efforts to a common goals? These two brothers raised schools that educated more than one-third of all black children at their time, right? And so also in the 1930s and 1940s, the divisions uh, between the two communities fell by the wayside, especially with the rise of a new force of the world that united both communities. And of course, in the wake of the Holocaust, the Jews and many Jewish institutions recognized they had a common cause with the black community in the fight against bigotry. They said, hey, look, we got a problem here. We got somebody that's on our neck. And we know that you guys have someone that's on your neck. I say we come together and we get both of these people off of our necks. Right? So the black organizations were eager to join forces with Jewish organizations. They would say, all right, cool, cool. We're in this war together. All right, we realize that some of the things that's happening to y'all is not fair, it's unjust, it's racist, it's wrong, and something needs to be do about it, and we're down to help you out. And of course, you know that we got our problems down here in America. You know down here is as hard as it is being black in America. So how about we join forces together, and let's put an end to this stuff, man, right? So of course, black organizations were eager to join forces with Jewish organizations, not only because the Nazis were horribly racist, but because black Americans realized that Jews were also von a vulnerable minority. So we recognize that, hey, y'all just like us. Y'all getting in, y'all, y'all are receiving hate. Y'all are receiving segregation. You guys are going through trials just like us. So of course, the horrors of the Holocaust led both communities to come together with a common vision for the future, a world devoid of hatred and discrimination where all people can live in freedom. And it gets even more interesting because after the war, Martin Luther King gave a speech at the American Jewish Congregation Convention in 1958. And quote, this is what he says. My people were brought to America in chains. Your people were driven here to escape the chains fashioned for them in Europe. Our unity is born of our common struggle for centuries, not only to rid ourselves of bondage, but to make oppression of any people by others an impossibility. Y'all like my Dr. King impression? I am happy. So this is what Dr. King said. Dr. King spoke at the convention, right? And what's interesting enough is that Rabbi jo Joachim Prince delivered a speech. At the 1963 March on Washington, just before Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous I Have a Dream speech, right? So at the, at the I Have a Dream speech, this is what uh, he says. He says, America must not become a nation of onlookers in the fight against racism, Prince told the crowd. America must not remain silent. Not merely black America, but all of America must speak up and act. Also, too, in 1965, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Herschel marched with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. from Selma to Montgomery, Alabama in 1965. So Ra Rabbi Abraham Joshua Herschel was a theologian and professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary. He himself participated in the march. 
So we are seeing that black leaders like W.E.B. Du Bois and Martin Luther King Jr. were vocal supporters as well of the Jewish state. And we've seen that there was a collaboration between Jewish leaders and black leaders in coming to the common goals of freedom and equality. So the question is, what happened? Seems like this is the perfect love story. Seems like this is the perfect brotherhood. What led to the division? What made things more complicated? Well, what's interesting is that in 1991, tensions were growing for years in Crown Heights, which was a Brooklyn neighborhood shared by blacks and Jews. There was one specific event that sort of broke into that perfect picture of unity between blacks and Jews. On August 19, 1991, a driver in the motorcade of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, which was the leader of the Shabbat movement, lost control of his car and hit two black children, killing one of them. Now, here's what's crazy. At the same time, crowds of West Indian Brooklynites spilled onto the sidewalk from a reggae concert and began to gather around. So you got onlookers from a concert looking, from reggae concert looking like, hey, what's, what's, what's going on here? When the local Jewish ambulance service, Hatzola, arrived, police reportedly ordered the crew to take the driver to safety. And a city ambulance was on the way for the children. So here you have that you have a driver in a motorcade who was Jewish, who lost control of his car. He hit two black children, killing one of them. You have onlookers who are looking at the scene. And police arrived, but when they arrived, they had local Jewish ambulance service pick up the driver to safety while they left the black children on the side of the street waiting for the city ambulance to come. Now, of course, when the ambulance pulled away, the two children were still on the ground. Tensions began to explode. Matter of fact, there are people heard in the street saying, kill the Jews. And fortunately, that night, a 29-year-old Hasidic man named Yankel Rosenbaum was stabbed to death. And as you can imagine, riots swept through Crown Heights for three days. Mobs of young black men roamed in the streets, targeting Jews and Jewish businesses, ambulances, and police. And the violence shocked the community. So much so that the historian Edward Shapiro wrote, it was the only riot in America, in American history, in which the violence was directed at the Jewish community. So as you can imagine, with such a tragic event and with such an event that created a division between the black and Jewish community, you know that something had to happen. And so in one memorable event, a Jewish teacher named David Lazerson and a black teacher named Paul Chandler brought together young Jewish and black residents of Crown Heights for a public conversation. And quote unquote, this is what they say. We got them talking and the questions were like, why do you have dreadlocks? Why do you have a hat on your head? Lazerson recalled from that first meeting, we really didn't know anything about each other. As the talks progressed, the group formed a black Jewish basketball team and music band. 30 years after the riots, the annual One Crown Heights event stands as a testament to the enduring efforts of black and Jewish Americans to see the humanity in each other and build a better community together. Honestly, do believe that like Crown Heights, we need a larger conversation. 
on this issue. Because I can be honest, as a black man, I was offended by how Kyrie Irving was treated. I was offended by the fact that there were six points that he had to go through just to be received into the grace of the NBA. And what's interesting to me is that Kyrie Irving was also motioned to spend $500,000 in charity to the Anti-Defamation League. $500,000. We're not talking uh, $50,000. We're not talking $5,000. We're not talking five hundred. we are not talking even $50 or $5. We're talking $500,000, $500,000. Then You know, to me, that, that was a little suspicious. I mean... Does it really cost $500,000 to get rid of anti-Semitism? How can you really put a price on the fight of equality? And what's also interesting to me is that Kyrie Irving and black athletes are not the only athletes who have been labeled as anti-Semitic. If I do recall, not too long ago, Brett Favre himself was uh, labeled an anti-Semitic. Brett Favre himself went on the, um, I believe it's a social media platform that he went on, I believe it's called Simeo, where he himself mentioned anti-Semitic words and made anti-Semitic statements. Matter of fact, he was also in communication with anti-Semitic groups. And it's interesting to me that his controversy fell by the wayside, and I think he only paid nothing more than $500 for what he did, but Kyrie Irving pays 500000 And so I don't believe that the accountability matches the, um, matches what the actions that were given. And, and, and interesting enough, what scares me even more is that you have a black brothers and sisters who are NBA analysts, Shaq, and Charles Barkley, who spoke on the issue, and Shaq called Kyrie Irving an idiot. That's interesting to me. So, Kyrie Irving is an idiot for opening his mouth, but he's a genius when he dribbles the ball. Sounds like shut up and dribble to me. And it's sad that many NBA players were very slow to come to the aid and the side of Kyrie Irving. Now, I'm not saying that they should have condoned his action. I'm not saying that they should condone what he did. But at least to stand by his side and to say, hey, look, I know Kyrie Irving. He's not who we think he is. And it's amazing to me how the power of the media has the power to label someone as anti-Semitic and anti-Semites just with their cameras and flashes and news lines and headliners in which the whole world would believe that. And it's funny because Adam Silver himself came out and said that Kyrie Irving is not anti-Semitic. He's not an anti-Semite. But yet, the media was trying to sell us an image of Kyrie Irving. We need a conversation. We need to come to some common ground and some understanding. We need to have more dialogues between blacks and Jews. We need to come to some sort of resolution because I don't believe in any hate whatsoever. 
I believe in all walks of life and races. Now, in my personal experiences with my Jewish brothers and sisters, um, has all been positive. I can't think of one instance or one incident I've had personally with a Jewish brother or sister. I used to work at CVS. And where I worked at in CVS was a very uh, busy town called Los Olis downtown, where there's a lot of businesses out there. And I, we had a lot of Jewish customers that came in. And they were very nice, very cordial. I've never had a customer throw money at me. I've never had a customer um, have any sort of incidents. It was always a pleasant experiences when I came into contact with my Jewish brothers and sisters. As a matter of fact, even where I work now, I have a, I had a coworker. He no longer works there, but I had a coworker who was Jewish as well too. And we got along very well. We had great conversations. He used to listen to rap music. We talked about rap music. He used to, you know, he watches sports. Um, and we had a good relationship. We spoke, you know. Now, to get even more personal, I never necessarily dated you know, a Jewish girl. I never had a Jewish girlfriend, you know. I preferly prefer to date my SDA sisters, you know, for equally yoked purposes. But, you know, when I really think about it, Jews and, you know, and Seventh-day Adventists, because that's how I identify myself. I am a Seventh-day Adventist. Our differences aren't too, too much. Uh, I, you know, I mean, we believe in the Sabbath. You know what I'm saying? The Jews believe in the Sabbath. Now, of course, we have different ways on how we go about keeping the Sabbath, but nonetheless, we both believe that there needs to be a day of rest, okay? And so, you know, if Julia comes my way, what's up? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I believe in the Sabbath. You believe in the Sabbath. You believe the Messiah is coming. I believe he's coming again. I think we could really make something happen. As long as the rabbi is cool with it, I'm a fool with it. <laughs> right? Now, but on, on a very serious note, my personal experiences have always been pleasant with my Jewish brother's and sisters. But unfortunately, the Jewish community, like all communities, is not perfect. Not everyone has had a pleasant experience in the Jewish community, just as not everyone has had a pleasant experience in the black community or in the white community. And one thing that kind of inches my ears about the term anti-Semitic is that it's stoned on people who has an opinion of the Jewish community, not necessarily people who hate Jews. You, you know, and, and it's interesting that that label is thrown on people who criticize Jews when really that label is supposed to be used for people who hate Jews and who have evil intentions for them. How can you label someone with evil intentions for you with the same label as someone who just has an opinion or criticism of you? How is criticism internalized as hate? I mean, does a parent hate their son? Does a father hate his son for chastising him? Does a father hate his son for correcting him? Does a teacher hate her student for grading their paper and giving them an F if they didn't do what they were supposed to do? I mean, how are we supposed to come to a resolution if there are problems in a relationship, but those problems can't be addressed, and when they are addressed, labels are being thrown? You know, I just pray that somehow in this whole controversy that we can all sit down at the table of brotherhood and have these discussions and dialogues. Because I would love to understand more from my Jewish brothers and sisters. I would love to have a deeper and broader understanding and meaning of what it means to be a Jewish and what it means to be a Semite and, 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 and Semitic, you know? I mean, the internet is not enough. 
We need to come to each other. We need to have more light and understanding in each other. We need to put our differences aside and walk on common ground. I mean, at the end of the day, whether you're born in Israel or whether you're a Jewish or whether you're a black Israelite or a Hebrew Israelite, at the end of the day, we're all God's children. At the end of the day, we are all pure and precious in God's sight. At the end of the day, what unites us is more stronger than what divides us. And I just hope that this podcast episode is a part of something much more deeper and meaningful. Because like Adam Silver said, this is bigger than basketball. We're talking about humanity. We're talking about freedom. We're talking about equality. We're talking about a better future and a better world for our children and for our kids to live in. I pray that all my brothers and sisters in different walks and faiths, that you all stay true to who you are, stay true to your identity, stay true to your religion, stay true to your belief. Because at the end of the day, we'll all be judged, not according to our skin color, not according to our race or our ethnicity, but according to the light that God has entrusted us with. And may we, like Kyrie Irving says, be a light in this dark world. Thank you for listening to this episode. And until next time. All right. So that pretty much sums up today's episode. I want to thank you all for listening to this podcast, The Truth For You. And if you haven't, be sure to subscribe to the podcast so that you may be able to get extra contents and other counsels and advices as we just had on this episode. This will be all my youths. May you all have a blessed one. And until next time, like always, stay blessed. Goodbye. Thank you.